Thank you, Don. Yeah. All right, I do remember you, quite a few of you. It's been a long time. The last time we were together, we did not realize that we were being interrupted quite so quickly. Uh, if you remember, early in the year 2020, things were in the process of change. I'd been doing some interim preaching uh, here, and a decision had been made to call a young man from Earlham, Iowa. Uh, he and his wife were going to come over, and there was an orderly process that was going to take place. And then along came the pandemic, and we were shut down, and everything seems to have changed. Now, I walked in, and I noticed some things changing on the wall and the, the entry down below, entering in. Various other things, I sense that if an atmosphere is changing, too. There's a kind of an optimism here. And there's specifically a gladness for you being back up on your feet and so on. Um, I should tell you that things changed for me just a little bit, too, during this period of time. Uh, as you may recall, I was not married at the time that I was coming over. My wife had died after 52 years of marriage. And just as the pandemic hit, I was introduced to a woman with whose lives, life I had crossed a number of times but had never met. And uh, at the age of 75, I fell wildly in love and we got married. <laughs> and that changes a lot at this stage of life, to be sure. At any, any stage, it produces change. But... Uh, she's not here with me today because she's involved in a ministry at our local church that uh, she uh, is needing to tend to. And so there will be another time, I trust, when uh, she'll be ever able to uh, meet the folks here at Countryside. I've been very tempted to just spend my time reflecting and reminiscing this morning. I think you probably don't need me to do that, but what I would like to do is to go back to a sermon that had never really been developed but was kind of in my mind as something to be developed and I've already had an affirmation that, yeah, that's the thing that we need to give attention to today. Um, you sometimes get those notions and it takes a while for it to germinate into a message. The message I have to you today is relatively short on exposition and interpretation, and longer on application. Uh, the title that we've chosen, The Church of Brotherly Love, is specifically something that was coming to my mind as I was watching how you are self-consciously pulling yourselves together and attempting to be for one another and to be for your community. I'm going to uh, open this with a simple scripture uh, in Romans, the 10th chapter. I said the 10th chapter, I mean the 12th chapter and the 10th verse. Pay attention to what I mean, not to what I say here. 
A, a simple direction, it's one of those one another passages of Paul, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, you understand quite well that uh, the Bible talks of love in different ways. This is a love that it, it's not that uh, absolutely all out and intentional, decisive love of the agape love, the kind of love that says, I absolutely will do this, I must do this. Neither is it the kind of erotic or sensational love that our culture tends to think of when it uses the term love. This is that brotherly love, that kind of love that involves a recognition that we are a part of each other. I care about what happens in your life. You're my brother. You're my sister. And we do this kind of love because it's who we are. It comes out of our very nature, not necessarily our human nature, but our nature of having, having been in family. You, you see, become family. I become part of your family. We are brothers and sisters together. When, well, some of you have probably had days when everything has gone wrong. You have those days where it's painful You've been disappointed. You've perhaps been scolded. You've experienced rejection. You find out that you've made mistakes. You don't seem to be anything able to do anything right. And you can't wait to get home. Because you know when you get home, there is a safe haven. The people here love me. They'll accept me. And I won't be shouted at by anybody This is home. That's when we're experiencing interactive brotherly love. Now, I'd like to reflect through some scriptures that would give us a chance to look at different ways in which this brotherly love plays out. The first one I'd like to look at is in Galatians, the sixth chapter and the tenth verse. Therefore, As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, this is not a simple doing good deeds. We're not trying to get a Boy Scout merit badge of any sort. This is a self-conscious choice about sharing in the joy, doing good things for others. Now, we, we all know about sharing in good experience. We share in good times. Someone's just had an anniversary. We celebrate that. Someone's gotten a, promo, a promotion. We're really happy about that. There's a new baby in a family. We share those good times together. That's a part of being involved in good things. We're involved in the same way, however, in some difficult times in the family. We're involved when things aren't going well, when one's lost a job, when the car's broken down, when we have a problem with 
some kind of issue in the house where our finances are stressed. In the family, we care about the bad times because we care about the people who are experiencing those times. In the family, we even have what we might call the grand times. Grand times? How many grandparents here in the room? A lot. <laughs> I was at a, uh, at a grade school game uh, some time back, and there was a woman there who was just really excitedly cheering. And so I asked her, I said, do you really enjoy this game? She said, enjoy it? I don't even understand it. <laughs> but I love my granddaughter. <laughs> and those grand times where we realize we may see things generationally. We see over it. We've been through some of the things that you're going through right now again and again. And as grandparents, we're specifically reaching out for you. We, we celebrate those grand times in the family. Now, how's that translate to the local church family? This local church self-consciously is attempting to structure itself in a way that's going to care for other members of the family. Hey, we've got a good thing going on. We're going to, and I can't believe it, I walk into the church and you're talking about going to celebrate river bandits? (laughs) Down in Springfield, we don't know about the river bandits. But... What you're doing is you're going out and you're sharing time together as a family. There's nothing strategically spiritual about that except who it is that you're uh, you're involved with. Uh, You do things as a family here because you see needs. Does anyone have a problem? I'll pray for you. Has someone had surgery? We join in affirmation of that person. While the surgery is going on, you're caring for that individual. Uh, I think there are people in this church who could be described as men with tools who know how to use them. There may be times where someone in the body or someone associated to the body of Christ here has a need in the house and it's overwhelming and they don't know what to do about it. And someone can come in and say, I think I could help you with that. The gathering that takes place down in the gym, sometimes that's a gathering where folks are saying, hey, how are you doing? What's gone on in your family? And talking about the recent events. But sometimes it's a matter of saying, you know a little bit about electricity, don't you? I've got a problem I'd like to talk about. And there's that kind of support. I've had a lot of a chance to be at a lot of different churches. One church that I'm acquainted with once a week uh, throughout the summer ropes off the parking lot except for a small section for people to pull cars into. And the rest of it is set out as a bicycle course for the kids. And the only expectation is that the kids need to have a mother or father who has come and is kind of supervising them. While the kids are out there in the sun riding bikes, having a lot of fun, the parents tend to be inside looking out and in the air conditioning, rubbing shoulders with each other 
and getting affirmation and talking about the kind of stuff that goes on in being parents this day. That's a kind of doing good unselfconsciously for one another. Sometimes there are crisis situations that develop. Just about three weeks ago, I was standing outside a home where the flames were coming out of the roof. And I uh, had a few moments of prayer with the woman uh, whose home was right at that time being destroyed. And with tears in her eyes, she said, I've never been through this, but I've been through hard times. And I know I'll make it through this one because my church taught me what love really means. She's had the experience of, of, of the church joining with her, supporting with her in the worst times of life. And she was ready for it now, not expecting it anxiously, but simply anticipating because God's people are faithful. It really is incumbent upon us to be looking around Wondering who has a need that I might be able to help with. And the church is bonded in such a way that we'll help you find a way to meet those needs. Another area in which the family works is something that doesn't get talked a lot about. But Don's uh, devotional time uh, at the prayer began to give some hint uh, to this. The issue of how we deal with sin is influenced by the fact that we have brotherly love for one another. Sin? Do we have sin? Ah, This church does not happen to have anyone out there with a sin detector gun ready to zap you. Ah, I've got another sinner in here. Uh, It doesn't seem to work that way. In fact, it it works quite a different way. There are people who walk through these doors who have sinners, who have sin. I think probably that includes most of us this morning here. There are some who are in such a situation where the sin is so dominating life that they're having a hard time going on with it. Some who experience the challenge of addiction. Addiction, actually most sin is addictive, but some of the addictions become more powerful. It may be addiction to uh, alcohol, substances, perhaps addiction that has come about through a time of intense pain and medication being given for that pain, and all of a sudden it's impossible to break away from that. Or in our culture, we have addiction to gambling. It's not just what you can do in Las Vegas, what you can do at the riverboat, It's hard in some communities to find a restaurant or a gas station that doesn't have its section set aside for playing the slot machines. And people find that the addiction is such that it just keeps lying to me. It tells me I'm going to experience satisfaction. 
And for a brief time, I feel like I do. And then the need is there and the need is calling. And pretty soon, no other values, no family value, no concern, no uh, responsibility at my job, no relationship at church is as important as my fulfilling this addiction. And what does the church do? Ha, we got you. It's going to happen to you. No, that's not it at all. It's rather an arm on the shoulder that says, I'm really sorry about what's happening to you, what you're involved in. And I'd like to help you find help so that you're not in bondage to this. And there are groups, there are systems, there are ways in which we can continue to support and pray for that person in breaking free of the bondage that was destroying self. That's what the uh, passage in uh, Galatians 6, first part is talking about. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently... But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. There's something amazing that goes on when Christians reach out to others in that kind of loving, supportive, redemptive way. Let me give you an illustration. Um, About three weeks ago, I was working in the toddler room at our church. I think the reason they asked me to do that is I'm supposed to be the surrogate grandpa. They like to have some old guy in there who can uh, handle the little kids. And just in the gathering time, I was down on the floor with the kids, and uh, they were just coming around and talking. And one little girl came up to me and said, uh, now I'd never met this girl before this day, uh, she said, uh, I want to do the trust fall. <laughs> you know about the trust fall? The trust fall where you stand. Now, we normally fix it up where we're, uh, we have about six of us back behind, and the person is going to stand and fall backwards, and we can catch this person safely. And it's, there's kind of an elation that's experienced in that moment of free fall with the security that I'm going to be safely caught. And it's, it's challenging for people who don't trust. Well, this little girl said she wanted to do the trust fall. And I thought, oh, and then she didn't uh, wait any longer. She did it. <laughs> she stood there and fell. I didn't think about it too long. I decided, I think I'll catch her. (laughs) Try to keep her from uh, experiencing the fall. But I got to wondering after that, what's going on with that little child who was willing? She did not know me. What's going on? She's willing to do that trust fall. Well, first of all, I'm guessing that she's from a family where they trust one another, and she'd experienced that kind of thing. That's where she'd learned about doing it. But also, coming to church, she is, apparently was experiencing the kind of love and affirmation 
that she felt at home and thought, this is safe. Now, adult Christians may experience the trust fall. That moment when, rather than being burdened by the guiltiness and the shame and the despair that you have been carrying through your inability to overcome or to cope with your own sin patterns, you instead risk trusting and you experience the elation of those Christians who are willing to catch you, put you on your feet, support you, and encourage you with accountability for what really is appropriately described as a long-term miracle, full restoration to where that sin is absolutely under control and pushed out of your life. It's a recognition that when someone sins, the sinner is in fact one of the primary victims of that person's sin. Maybe we'd like to just do a trust fall. You want to come up here? We can. No, okay, we won't do that this morning. Another issue uh, can be demonstrated. There's a passage over in Timothy, the First uh, Timothy, the fifth chapter. This speaks to a different dimension. Uh, let's look at that. Do not rebuke an older man harshly. You got a 77-year-old man asking you to do that here. Do not rebuke him harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. In brotherly love, we function here as a multi-generational church. Do you realize there are people who walk through these doors who have lived 70, 80, 90 years, and they're walking in to be with family? Do you realize there are virtually newborn infants who are brought into this church, and they're welcome. Now, what, what do you suppose these infants are going to learn from church today? Well, I suspect that this one will say, you know, didn't recognize the voice of the preacher today, don't know what's going on. Not for, No. What's really happening is that this is a part of the family's acculturation, choosing to say, just like, when we're going to go see grandma, when we're going to go see these people, here is something that's a part of our life, and at the earliest stage of life, we're including you. This multi-generational approach is countercultural. It's not the way our society works. Our society works, particularly with its commercial ventures, to kind of stratify, target very narrow slices of the uh, community. Um, if we were to handle that the way our culture does, here's the way our church services would be scheduled. 8 o'clock, everybody's 60 and above. That's when you come to church. 9 o'clock, oh, the middle-aged folks come at 9 o'clock. 10 o'clock, young adults are scheduled then. 
11 o'clock, the teenagers, if we can get you out of bed by then, that's when you're going to be coming. And never to rub shoulders with one another. Now, obviously, we do things that are age-specific for appropriate education and nurture and help, but there's a very self-conscious intent to say, we are one together. The older folks, you know, sometimes we don't like things that the younger folks do. We may not like the way they dress, act, wear their hair, talk, walk, uh, you name it. We're sometimes bothered by it. In fact, when I look back at the way I used to present myself when I was much younger, I didn't much like that either. Uh, but we bridge it all because we're family. We love one another, and we recognize that we pull things together as one. Uh, There's another scripture that uh, speaks to us on this. The uh, second chapter of James speaks to a dimension here. When you're together, do not show favoritism. There's a challenge that uh, we have. Our culture shows a lot of favoritism. There is bigotry and hostility that works its way in so many different ways, sometimes most stridently from the voices of those who are calling upon the rest of us to not be bigoted. It's a challenging, challenging situation. But James, a scripture we don't have on a slide But he goes on a little bit further about the 10th verse of that second chapter. He says, and this is today's English version translation, if you treat one another differently because of outward appearances, you commit sin. The challenge is to understand that we're more loving toward the core than we are toward any kind of demonstration, any kind of outward appearances says, I am this or I am that. This is the issue that Paul was speaking to in Galatians uh, 3, 28 and 29. Therefore, there is now no Jew or Gentile. uh, uh, Let me say, okay, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, this is a scripture that has really been pulled out of context and radically misapplied by a few in society who want to deny that there can even be something as real as, say, male or female. The point that Paul is making is we are not divided. God makes us one. We still have our distinct identities, but that identity difference is not as important at all as the oneness that pulls us together in Jesus Christ. So those who are different from us are still brothers and sisters bonded together with us in brotherly love. We are family. God is our Father. Jesus is both Savior and our brother. And one more scripture that I'd like to look at is in 1 John 3, where the apostle says, Behold, 
what amazing love that we should be called children of God. And that's exactly what we are. Our collective identity as brothers and sisters under Jesus Christ gives us our distinct personal identity as well. And I don't care who else you are, what title you hold. Are you a manager? Are you a servant? Are you a a director of a program, president of a corporation? I don't care who you are. Your most important identity is your identity as a child of God. Preacher Fred Craddock uh, told a story that happened to him when he was quite early in his ministry. He and his wife were at a restaurant in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Now, Gatlinburg's a beautiful setting. My wife and I were just recently there. And he said that he was in a little restaurant just up a little bit from the town, looking out across the hills and Great Smokies. And as they were eating their breakfast, a man wearing uh, bib overalls, flannel shirt, and a lot of gray hair uh, came up and said, Hi, my name's Ben. Who are you? And Fred introduced himself and his wife. And he said, well, what do you do, Fred? He said, I'm a preacher. Preacher, eh? Let me tell you a preacher story. And he kind of elbowed him, sat down in the booth with him, and he told this story. He said, I grew up in these hills out here. A beautiful place, but it wasn't very much fun for me as a child. You see, I never knew who my papa was. My mama knew, but she never told anyone. And when I went to school, it seemed that the kids had been discouraged from making any kind of friendship with me. They separated from me, and and they, they called me nasty names. And on Saturdays, when mama would take me into town for shopping, the women would come up and they'd look at my face, looking real closely, trying to identify facial features that might give a hint as to whose papa, uh, who my papa was. He said it was humiliating. But there was a little country church not far from where I lived, uh, where I started going, and I was fascinated by this preacher. He was a tall man with dark hair and deep-set eyes that just seemed to pierce right through me. He wore a long swallowtail coat, and he spoke with a booming voice. And I'd go to that church. I'd slip in after the services were started. Then I'd try to slip out before they were uh, dismissed so that I wouldn't have to deal with people. But one day, I went And I fell asleep on the back pew. And when I was awakened by the noise of people uh, exiting the building, I panicked. I tried to get out. But when I got to the aisle, there was just this forest of adult legs standing there. And I elbowed my way through and had just broken through the exit when I felt a hand on my shoulder. And I looked, and it was the preacher 
And he took me, turned me around and looked at my face. And he said, young man, whose child are you? And he said, I just began to wilt. I thought it's happening here again to me. And then he looked closely at my eyes and he said, young man, I perceive that you are a child of God. And then he spun me around, gave me a little swat on the behind, and he said, you go out and you claim your birthright. And he said, that preacher that day made all the difference in the world to me. Well, Fred Craddock said, I sat there and I thought, that's quite a story, but something rang familiar in me. So I said to him, Ben, I grew up in these hills here probably about 40 years after you did. And I remember my parents talking about an illegitimate boy who grew up in the hills but became the finest governor that the state of Tennessee has ever had. And his name was Ben, Ben Hooper. And the old man just sat there, smiled, reached out and shook his hand and said, really good to meet you. You go claim your birthright now. Brothers and sisters, Showing the love of Jesus Christ is always challenging and it is always rewarding. Not necessarily at the moment, but it will be rewarding for all of us. We will be the family of God. And as the family of God, we will love one another. We'll love our community we'll see the body of Christ growing. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for making it possible for us to have family here that goes way beyond where family can otherwise be. Family that loves, that cares, that intervenes, that reaches out, that nurtures and supports the very best in us. And that very best that's in us is that we are your children. I pray that you will be with us as we attempt to claim our birthright and carry on as the children of God in brotherly love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.